Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 5. We'll be looking at that chapter this morning as we're going through these great stories. You heard the phrase, the handwriting's on the wall? Well, this chapter is where that phrase comes from. So that's cool. I mean, this is the source right here. Going to help us learn some God-strong fundamentals. So the NBA Finals are over. Wow. Who knew? <laughs> you know, the Golden State Warriors have swept the Cavaliers. Yeah, I could have guessed that one. I could have guessed that one. I thought, you know, when the Warriors won Game Three at the Cavaliers' home court, you could have said of the Cavaliers, "The handwriting's on the wall." That's exactly right. So, you know, basketball is just a game of fundamentals, really. Uh, it's dribbling, shooting, rebounding, uh, playing good defense. And I remember going to basketball camp, and there, you know, you go for a whole week, and they never let you play a game. I mean, all you're doing is learning layup drills and passing drills and how to do defense. And there's a very good reason for that, because if you don't learn the fundamentals of basketball, you end up riding the bench. And that's a great place to be if you're an NBA player, <laughs> but not so great if you're a follower of Jesus Christ trying to live a God-strong life in this world. So we're going to learn some fundamentals today uh, that we need to live a God-strong life in this world that's running hard away from God. And Daniel 5 is going to help us answer the question, what are some of these fundamentals? So let's pray before we jump into it, all right? Oh, Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you uh, today and to your word, and boy, we're just thankful for uh, for the treasure that it is in our life, for, for the guidance that it gives us, uh, for the help that it gives us in seeing you know, how, how you want us to live, how you call us to live. And we're thankful for your grace that um, helps us as we, as we take it in and it convicts us and helps us walk in your way because um, it's, it's abundant and it's life-giving. And we pray that it would be that today. I pray the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight and it would be palatable for our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first... God's strong fundamental comes out of verses 1 to 9 and is to recognize your rebellion. I'm going to start with the first five verses. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of, uh, in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of God had a, and the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. 
that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So in, in the span of a little white space between chapter 4 and chapter 5, we've time warped 30 years into the future to this Feast that Belshazzar is throwing in Babylon. Now, there's a lot going on in that white space um, that we find out from other chapters in the Bible and uh, we find out from historians outside the Bible. Um, king Nebuchadnezzar, who's been the king all throughout Daniel up to this point, he reigned in Babylon 43 years until he died in 562 BC. And he was succeeded by his son, who reigned two years, and he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, who wanted the throne. And that guy, he reigned uh, four years, and I'm not going to try to mention their names because they're way too hard to, uh, to say. Um, but that guy reigned four years, and he died, and then his son took over, and he reigned nine months uh, because of a group of conspirators who assassinated him. Um, one of those conspirators was named Nabonidus. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) That's the best I can do. Nabonidus. Now, the reason that that's important is because Nabonidus was king of Babylon during the events of Daniel chapter 5. And so liberal historians um, said, hey, this Belshazzar guy, he's made up. He didn't really even exist. But then in the middle of the 1800s, they found some scrolls. And those scrolls had the name of Belshazzar as the son of Nabonidus. So, you know, there you have it. Uh, I think I read something like, you know, if you want to look really smart in the present, question what the Bible says, but you're going to look foolish in the future. (laughs) That's pretty good. So Belshazzar, he's more like the crown prince than he was king. But the reason he was called king over Babylon is because his father, Nabonidus, was always gone. He was always spending time away from the city. One time he spent 14 years away from Babylon. And so the people saw Belshazzar as king. And so in Daniel chapter 5, he is king Belshazzar and he is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So interesting background for some things that we're going to look at. So Belshazzar throws this huge feast for a thousand of the most important people in Babylon. And, uh, you know, this is a this is a big drinking party. I mean, this is a highfalutin Drinking party. Everything you can imagine that would go on at one of those parties is going on here in this, in this scene. So it turns out though that this is one big show. It's a big show of Belshazzar's arrogance and ignorance and indifference toward the most high God. So after he's feeling the wine, you know, he calls for those vessels that were taken by his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar when he conquered Jerusalem and Judah. He took some vessels of God back in Daniel chapter 1 and he brought them home and he put them in his, his, the, the house of his gods as a sign that, you know, we've defeated the God of the Jews. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he calls for these vessels to be brought and they start drinking from them and they start doing toasts to the gods of uh, their own making, gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone and iron. Now, Belshazzar didn't just run out of clean dishes here. You know, he, he is making an intentional choice to mock the living God, to take things that were dedicated to him and to use them for his own enjoyment and his own religion. 
Now, if you've read through this chapter and you know what happens to Belshazzar by the end of this night, you might think that he deserves everything that he gets. He is mocking the living God. He is giving his worship to gods of their own making. I mean, it's blatant. Anyone can see sin against the Most High God, rebellion. That's what Belshazzar's doing. Now, if we are going to live God's strong lives, if we're going to do that, we have to be able to recognize the same kind of actions in our own lives against God, recognize our own rebellion. Now, any sin that we commit is an act of rebellion against God. But we're here in Daniel chapter 5, so we're going to just kind of look at, at some things that we do that are in the flavor of Belshazzar. And so Now, we don't have the uh, vessels of God that we can take for ourselves and, uh, and abuse and use for our own enjoyment. But the question would be, do we take anything in our lives uh, that is dedicated to God, devoted to God, and use it or abuse it for ourselves? Sure we do. Take your, your body, for instance. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, double dose of that this morning. Um, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, Paul, he is there finishing up uh, a section to the Corinthian church that is encouraging them to flee from sexual immorality. And we should do that for this reason right here, to glorify God in your body. I mean, God has given us very pleasant boundary lines called marriage to practice our sexual behavior in. And we should practice sex that way, under those boundaries of marriage, uh, for uh, the per- production or the, to produce godly offspring. That was the purpose of all of that. But, you know, we do a lot more with our bodies than just have sex. And think about your hands, for instance. You know, do your do you do your hands glorify God all day long? Or or do you find them doing things that He wouldn't want us to do? Our minds, do your thoughts glorify God all day long? Or are we thinking things that we know we shouldn't be spending time thinking about? What are we thinking about? Our eyes, what are we looking at? Our mouth, what comes out of our mouth and what goes into our mouth? Is our speech that's coming out of our mouth all day long, is it glorifying God? Or is it saying things that we would be horrified if people in here heard that stuff come out from us? What are we saying? Is it glorifying God? Now, what goes into our mouth isn't so much a problem. It's how much goes in. To our mouth. You know, Belshazzar's drinking too much wine. He got drunk. Um, Paul says to the Ephesians, hey, don't get drunk with wine, but be full of the Holy Spirit. It's about how, how much is going in. You know, listen to Proverbs 23, verse 2. Put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Now, how is that wisdom for us? Is that just, you know, a healthy diet kind of a, a comment there? Yeah, it probably has something to do with that, but there's also something to do with our spiritual health. You know, because food can easily become an idol 
in our life, something that we replace God with. So instead of running to God for comfort and for satisfaction and for relief and for enjoyment, we run to food. Food replaces God in our life. But food is just one of those things. I mean, we can do that with a lot of different things. Sex can be an idol. Entertainment, success, achievement, even family. All of that stuff can be an idol. We can, we can put that in the place of God. We run after it. We sacrifice for it. It is what our life is about. If you look where you're running, where you're sacrificing, what you're working so hard for to enjoy in your life, that is where we ought to look for idols in our life. So what do we do if we see it, if we recognize rebellion in our life? What do we do? Well, I, I would suggest doing the same exact thing that Belshazzar does in verses 6 to 9, just for a different reason. Um, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So Belshazzar turns pale white here. He's panicking, falling to the ground in fear as his limbs give way. Some, some, uh, uh, trans, or some commentators say this is more like his faculties giving away, like there'd be a puddle under his seat kind of a thing. Okay, I mean, he's freaking out here when he sees this hand. I mean, who, who wouldn't, right? Seeing this hand right, right on the wall. So it calls for his wise men to come in and tell him, hey, what, is this, what does this mean? He promises them purple clothes and a promotion into the kingdom to third highest. And I kind of thought that was funny when I first read that. I mean, third? You're giving me third? Why not second? <laughs> I mean, what's up with third? But then you read about Nab- Nabonidus and Belshazzar. I mean, Belshazzar was number two, so that's as high as he could go was number three. When we see... The handwriting on the wall, and we recognize that we are bowing down to some form of idols in our life. That is the Spirit of the Living God helping us see that we've replaced God in our life with something or someone else. It's the Spirit doing that. And that, when that happens, a conviction comes over you. You feel a pain in your heart. Godly sorrow overwhelms your heart. Your limbs give way, you fall to the floor. So it's conviction. And then there's a confession that comes out of your mouth. I am guilty. I am doing this, God. I am sorry. And then there's a repentance. A repentance that that enters your heart. And then you feel God's grace come and pick you up and say, let's go do this differently. That's what repentance is. And repentance isn't just this one-time action that we do when we are um, saved, it's a way of life for the believer, a gift from God that happens in our hearts. It's a painful process, but it's how we become God strong. So the next fundamental is going to come from verses 10 to 16. Build your reputation. Let's read those verses. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. 
Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah? I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be third ruler in the kingdom. So the queen, she's in the next room and she hears her her, uh, son kind of going crazy there. And so she comes in to console her son. And she says, calm down, calm down. And she's reminded of this extraordinary guy who had helped her father-in-law, King Nebuchadnezzar, in a very similar situation. This man, he is a man of light, a man of understanding. He is a man of wisdom, a man of the spirit. So Daniel gets called into the king's presence. Belshazzar says, so so you are Daniel? You know, the one that my father took as a, a spoil of war from the land of Judah? Now keep in mind that, that Daniel is about 80 years old now. And he's been serving faithfully in Babylon for 60 years. And we have no reason to think that he is not still in that high position of the chief wise men. Okay, so that that's the setting there. So Belshazzar, he says this, I've heard this about you, that you're known as a man of the spirit, a person of light, somebody who can solve riddles, problems, interpretations. I, I've heard this about you. After 80 years of your life, if God gives you that many, what do you want to be known for? What do you want people to say about you when you're 80? Now, now please understand this. I am not encouraging you um, to build up your own name, to build up your own reputation. This is not about making your name great. This is about being a godly person. And about making God's name great. We don't want people to say, you know, our, we don't want them to lift up our name as awesome, but the name of Jesus. That's what our lives are about. You know, there's this, uh, this Promise Keeper song. It's about 25 years old now. So it was pretty, pretty young for a song, isn't it, in the church? <clears throat> well, I used to sing this song a lot. It's called A Man of the Spirit, A Man of the Word. And, and when I sing it today, it still brings tears to my eyes as I, as I sing the lyrics. This is what it says. Jesus, make a man of me with your integrity. A servant of the Lord, an offering unfold, a man of the spirit, a man of the word, a man of mercy, fire and light, a man who loves the truth, who runs to win the crown of life and lives to honor you. Jesus, make a man of me 
to bring glory unto thee, faithful to the end, fervent and not faint, a man of the Spirit, a man of the Word. You know, it is still a desire of my heart to have that kind of reputation. Be a man of the Spirit and a man of the Word. Now, to be a man of the Spirit, a a person of the Spirit, uh, you need to have a passion for God, a fire for Him, and you want to be able to keep in step with the Holy Spirit that you've been given when you believed. And then you'll exercise the spiritual gifts that you've been given um, for the for the building up and uh, growing of the church and for the glorifying of the Lord. That's what spiritual gifts are for. And then you'll bear a lot of spiritual fruit. In fact, you'll bear all the spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as your life bears all this fruit all together, you will be a person of light. You'll be a person of light. A person that people will run to when their life gets dark. So how do you build a reputation of being a person of the Spirit? Well, you have to ask God to do it because it's His work. You know, Jesus, make a man of me because I can't I can't do this. And then you recognize rebellion in your life. Recognize sin. And confess it. And repent of it. Live a life of repentance. Abide in Jesus. Remember what he says in John 15? Abide in me or you can't do anything. Apart from me, you can't do anything. So abide in Jesus and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you. I'm telling you, you spend your life from this day forward working on that kind of life. You will not be sorry and you will be known as a person of light. Now, to become a person of understanding and wisdom and, you know, who can solve problems, you've got to be a person of God's word. You know, you've you, you got to be able to look at the world through the lens of the Bible and be able to explain and interpret what is going on. You've got to be able to have spiritual conversations in the Word through um, the Bible that God has given us. You've got to trust what He says and try to work it out and live it out in, in your life. You know, read it. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to memorize it. Study it. All of those things. Be a person of God's Word. Let it be the greatest influencer in your life. Now, you should understand um, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. And so, not everybody's going to think you're wise. In fact, they're going to think you're plumb crazy to believe this is anything other than a book of fairy tales. Okay, But there will be other people. Other people that will come to you if they know you're a person of the word. When their life gets confusing, they'll come and say, I need help. What should I do? And there's your opportunity. What are you known for? What are you known for? When people talk about you, what are they saying? That person's a godly man. They're a godly woman. That person is full of grace and hope and love and mercy. That person always has something encouraging me for my heart. What do you want to be known for? Now, unfortunately, there are going to be times when we do something or we say something that hurt our reputation. And when that happens, you want to take responsibility for it. You want to say, you know, I messed up. 
And then you want to go to the person who you messed up with and you want to apologize and ask for forgiveness and say you're sorry. You know, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 11, seek peace and pursue it. And in Romans 12, verse 8, it says, if at all possible, live in peace with everyone. When you mess up, do your part to repair what's broken and then let God take care of the rest. Then there's also going to be people in your life that come along and falsely accuse you and say evil things against you. When that happens, don't defend yourself. Don't defend yourself. Jesus gave gave us an example of what to do when this happens in our life. When he was standing before the Sanhedrin and they were falsely accusing him of blasphemy, what did he do? No words were found in his mouth. He did not defend himself. He told them, go talk to the people who heard me preach. See, when you're trying to live a God-strong life, when you're working on that kind of a reputation, there's going to be a lot longer line of people who will defend you than there will be people who are accusing you. Let them do the talking. You follow Jesus' example. And what you will find out, that the, this, this, what feels like a huge hit to your reputation, is actually just the opposite. It's part of being God-strong in our lives. So what do you want to be known for? You know, going after Daniel's reputation here, being a person of light and wisdom, you do that, I promise you will not be disappointed. You won't be. The next one is in verses 17 to 23. So know your responsibility. So uh, let's read that. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourselves and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and, you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in, who, in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So Daniel speaks right up. And he doesn't start off with the usual, O king, live forever. No, he's like, you know, keep your gifts. Give them to somebody else. I don't need those. I'll interpret this for you. You know, don't, don't need your reward. 
So if it sounds like there's a little tension in the air going on between Belshazzar and Daniel, there, there absolutely is. I mean, Belshazzar was, um, when he addressed Daniel, it was not as the chief of all the uh, wise men of Babylon. It was the exiled Jew whom my father captured. So he's looking down on Daniel. And then in his I have heard statements, there's a, there's a flavor of doubt in there. You know, I've heard you're able to do these things. You know, and, and he says later, if you can interpret. And so there's no respect there. It's you prove your worth to me. So Belshazzar is repeating the sins of his father, grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, allowing pride and arrogance to ruin his life. So Daniel proceeds to tell the king that his problem is really not his problem. It is really not going to do you any good, king, to know uh, that this writing on the wall is a judgment against you and that your life and kingdom are about to end. It's not going to do you any good to know that. But it might do you some good to know why the writing is there in the first place. What's the root of all of your troubles? So the Most High God, He gave your father Nebuchadnezzar His position, His power, His great kingdom. He gave all that to Him. He could do whatever He wanted, but He acted proudly. And when He did that, God humbled Him, sent Him out to pasture, and He thought like an animal. He ate like an animal until He knew, until He knew the Most High God reigned. That's what happened, Belshazzar. You know that story. This is from your family tree. You know it's true, but you didn't learn anything from it. You walked in pride instead of humility, and now we're at this moment of truth. So this is where the prophet comes out in Daniel. Belshazzar, um, knowing that he'd been judged, that, that his life's about over, it, it wouldn't do him any good. Knowing why he is, knowing why this is all about to come to a, an abrupt ending that very night, um, is the only thing that could help him uh, repent. So Daniel made this courageous, bold speech. He's speaking the truth here uh, to explain to him why God was right in doing what he was about to do. Now, I don't know if Belshazzar could have repented here. You know, like uh, his father, uh, grandfather did, Nebuchadnezzar, out in, out, out in the field. But the thing is, Belshazzar is given all the information to be able to do so. He knows a lot of stuff about God. He knows what happened to his father. He knows the dev- devastating impact of pride. He knows that God gave the, the kingdom uh, to people and, and what he can do. He knows the stories. He knows they're true. They're not just stories, but he didn't bow the knee. You knew all this, but you didn't honor the Lord who holds your breath in his hand. You know, it is very difficult to speak the truth into somebody's life. But it is even more difficult to receive it. You can see that with Belshazzar. You know, Jesus was a a man who was full of grace And he was full of truth, full of both. And that's how we should want to be in our lives. It's our responsibility to bring grace and truth into people's lives. See, grace and truth are not competing with each other. They are complementing one another. Grace without truth leads to license. Just go do what you want. doesn't matter. You're forgiven. Truth without grace leads to legalism. doesn't work. It's our responsibility to bring both into people's lives. Do you remember the, um, 
The woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Remember that? She's caught in adultery and this crowd's running through the street and they got the rocks in their hands. They're getting ready to stone her and they come to Jesus. They say, is it right to kill her as the law commands? And he says, you know, be, let, the, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. And then one by one they start dropping their weapons. Oldest first because you're wiser. Down to the younger. They all leave. Jesus goes to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone. He says, I'm not one of your accusers either. Go and sin no more. That is a grace and truth story. Jesus acknowledged that she was a sinner, that she sinned. But she, she was not condemned for it by him. He did not condemn her. See, you ignore the truth in people's lives and grace becomes cheap and easy. But you bring both grace and truth into people's lives and grace becomes expensive and transformative, powerful. And it's our responsibility to bring both into the lives of people. Now, you'll be a person who gravitates toward one or the other, toward grace or toward truth. You'll be a grace person or you'll be a truth person. And it's good to know which way you would lean so you can work on being a person who's full of both of those things. Speaking the truth in love, it's just one of our responsibilities. The word has lots of them. Let your light shine before men. Salt the earth. Help out where you can. Do the right thing or that's sin for you. Know Jesus and make him known. Practice the one another's in the church. You know, all these things are our responsibility. Do you know about them? Read the word and then go do the next thing you know is right. That's a God's strong fundamental. Final verses here. We finally get to the handwriting on the wall. It's going to point us to our last fundamental, worship your Redeemer, verses 24 to 31. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Daniel, he reads the writing on the wall, and he tells the king what it means, which is harder than you might think. Um, uh, the writing uh, would have been written without vowels, and so the reader would have to supply them. And we aren't told the pattern that those letters showed up on the wall. Um, they could have shown up in different patterns. So here's one option, if you put that up, Kurt. Um, so it's all in a line. And we know that Hebrew and Aramaic is read from right to left. And so it's backwards than we might think. So that's one option, but the, there's another option. It could have been written uh, like this, where the words are vertical, right to left. 
without, without the vowels. So when you're thinking about the handwriting on the wall, don't think of it as a paragraph like this that we can read on the wall. Think of it as a puzzle. It's a puzzle to figure out. And Daniel had the ability to interpret it. God has numbered your days. Your reign as king is over. You have been weighed on the scales of justice and they are out of balance. Your kingdom is about to be divided. Not good news for Belshazzar. Going to happen pretty fast. But he does keep his word. you know, And he gives Daniel the clothes and the chain and he promotes him to third highest ruler in the kingdom, which lasts for just a few hours, it sounds like. Because the, uh, the Persian army is right outside and they're getting ready to storm the gates. And they end up taking the city and uh, Belshazzar is killed and Darius the Mede takes over as the new king. So the fall of Babylon is a huge event, uh, but it shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. Um, God has this plan of destruction for the city. And he told, told anyone who was interested in reading about it, uh, he told them about it. And why was he going to do it? Because they sinned against him, because of the idol worshiping that was going on, because of the abuse of his people that was going on. And in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51, you can read about the fall of Babylon by the Persians and the Medes. Now, God even gave King Nebuchadnezzar that warning back in Daniel chapter 2. Remember the, the statue, the, the image of the head, the head of gold and then the silver, bronze, and went on down? There was, that was foreshadowing. That was, hey, this is going to happen to your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to fall. The chest of arms and silver is going to, going to take over. Now, you would have thought with all that information that when the prophesied army is sitting right outside your front door ready to come in and attack you, you would be trying to figure out how to defend yourself against that attack instead of just throwing back the wine. Right? But Belshazzar and his people were prideful. They were, their pride clouded their judgment. See, Babylon was a, was a pretty fortified city. It had walls that were 300 feet high. And towers all around it had these formidable gates. And so it was thought that Babylon was indestructible. It doesn't matter that the army is outside waiting to take us on because we can't be beaten. So how did the Persians and the Medes take the city? Well, it happens there was a river that runs underneath the city of Babylon and they diverted the river and they used the riverbed to gain access to the city and it wasn't long before the place was taken over and all was lost. God had a plan of destruction for the city that was being carried out. And when you zoom out from that, from the events in Daniel and you start connecting dots between Isaiah and Jeremiah and you see what this big plan of God is and what's going on there, I mean, it just kind of stops you in your tracks. You know, his ways are higher than our ways. And our God is sovereign over history and people. He can defeat the strongest city. He is not worried about what we are doing that will get in the way of his will getting done. Nothing we do surprises him. And when you think about that, and I know it gets confusing pretty quickly about how we have free will and all that stuff, but just think about what God is doing and what he's planned and what he can accomplish. And I don't know about you, but that causes me to want to worship. He is sovereign. He is amazing. So God had this plan of destruction. He also has another plan in the works. It's a plan of salvation. If you think about it just a little bit, you don't even have to think about it very long. The handwriting on the wall written to Belshazzar 
could have been written to any one of us, right? Our days are numbered. You know, we, we, uh, our kingdoms are going to be divided amongst our kids. You know, we, we do rebel against God. We, we do uh, build up our own name instead of His. And we do miss opportunities that He gives us to serve Him and glorify Him. We do these things. The, 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 the truth is, every single one of us, we've been weighed, measured, and found wanting. And there's nothing that we can do about that. There's nothing we can do to get the scales to balance. But see, God, His plan wasn't for everyone to go the way of Belshazzar. He made another way. The way of Jesus. The handwriting on the wall for Jesus, I think it was all in that first song that we sang. Your days are not numbered. They go on forever. Your kingdom will go on and on forever. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found perfect. That's what is written on the wall for Jesus. And he is the only one that that could be written of. And he took that perfect life, placed it in his father's hands as a sacrifice so that his perfection could conquer my imperfection. His balanced scales balance my scales. The plan of salvation. You know, when you've been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, He changes the handwriting on the wall for you. His work does. So the question is, have you gotten in on the plan of salvation? Or are you destined still for the plan of destruction? You know you've gotten in on that plan of salvation if hearing about what Jesus has done causes you to want to worship. Oh, Heavenly Father, we uh, marvel at your word and uh, the good help that it is uh, for us. And Father, I know that was a, a lot uh, to take in. And so I would pray for your grace to be helpful today in that your spirit would just highlight or shine a light on something that we've heard Something that we need to fix. Something we need to give to you. Something that we need to work on. And let us do that in the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us. Make us people of light and people of the word. So we might go out and help those people who are in the dark. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.